Shohei Otani hits, pitches, and trades crypto. He does it all on the platform that trades it all. FTX, the official crypto exchange of MLB. But you don't have to be a pro to trade like one. Just download the FTX app and you could be trading crypto, NFTs, and more in minutes. FTX, Shohei's in. Are you? Hello, everyone. Welcome to Fitz on Fantasy. I'm Pat Fitzmorris. Find me on Twitter at Fitz underscore FF. So glad you could join me today. And before we get started, let me apologize for not having a show last week. I took a short trip to Arizona to visit my best friend since the second grade. And recording a podcast last week just proved to be impossible. I didn't realize that would be the case until just before the trip, which is why I didn't announce the hiatus in advance. So my apologies for that. But hey, it's great to be back. And here with me now, waiting patiently as I explain my truancy, is my friend Michael Salfino. You can find his work uh, for fantasy at The Athletic, for the NFL in general at 538.com. And he does a pair of gambling podcasts for betprep.com, the given props and Given Futures podcasts with gambling professional Brad Feinberg. And of course, he also does the excellent Breakfast Table podcast along with our friend Scott Pianowski. I've had the honor of appearing on that show a few times, and I believe this is Mr. Salfino's third time on this show. Find him on Twitter, at Michael Salfino. Mike, welcome back. Oh, it's great to be back. Looking forward to the music question that we have. I'm, you know, just like a sneak preview. There, there is a little bit of classic rock coming up. But um, looking forward to to talking to you about, you know, fantasy. It's been a strange year, um, probably more so in the general NFL than it has been in fantasy. But obviously, like every fantasy season, is strange in its own way. So, um, looking forward to talking to you about it after ten weeks are in the book. I can barely believe it. I know, man. Every season seems like it goes by in the blink of an eye. But this one, uh, yeah, maybe even a little faster than usual. And and one of the th- weird things, I mean, you mentioned uh, general NFL before we even get into the fantasy. Like, we should talk about this because the breakfast table is ostensibly a fantasy football podcast. Uh, you and Scott cover all manner of fantasy angles in your weekly discussions but you also preview NFL games from a betting angle uh, with you and Scott making yeah. your picks against the spread for every game. You guys are constantly taking the temperature of every team, trying to figure out who's good, who's bad, who's underrated, who's overrated. In most years, we have a pretty good sense 10 weeks into the season of who the Super Bowl contenders are, or at least we can name two or three of the favorites. But this season, I don't know about you, but I just have no idea which teams are good anymore so mike you're in new jersey if i went tony soprano on you put a gun to your head and forced you to give me a super bowl prediction which two teams would you give me oh man it is so hard i mean i can really find fleas with all of these teams and usually by now there's a team and it may not i i understand that at the 10 week mark there may be a couple teams that seem to be fleeless for lack of a better term that end up um 
actually regressing a little bit. And then some teams that seem to be out of sorts will rally and get hot heading into the playoffs. So certainly that could happen now. And and it so I don't mean to say that at 10 weeks we know who the Super Bowl teams are going to be, but we at least know who the conference favorites are to a reasonable degree. And I don't really feel that way about any team right now. But I guess in the NFC, I would um, probably lean toward the Rams with the Cowboys like right there. Um, but you know, you have a Mike McCarthy problem with the, with the, I mean, he is the head head coach. We all want to forget about that all the time and relegate him to kind of like a pointless role at the ostensibly at the head of that team. Um, but the AFC man, I, I don't know, like your guess is as good as mine. I, I was really, um, I didn't really believe in the Ravens. The Bills, I believe in their defense, but I just don't believe in defense. That's my problem with the Bills, right? And I don't think that the Bills have a diverse enough diverse enough offensive portfolio for when they're playing like a, a true contending team. Um, the Titans are 7-0 against playoff teams from last year, which is insane, but they seem to win with mirrors every week. I think Vrabel is like, coach of the year slam dunk. That was a Brad Feinberg um, given futures pick last week. I don't know, man. I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to punt on a question. It feels like kind of a cowardly thing to do, but I really can't give you an answer in the AFC. Yeah, I know. That's like, I was thinking are, are the Patriots actually contenders now? Like they play pretty good defense and it's kind of a just boring running back centric conservative offense, but like that might be enough this year. And I know, I know you were kind of on the Bengals a couple of weeks ago, but man, yes. that, that loss to the Browns was just alarming. I yeah, mean, it's for, for like sure. every, every weakness that team had was just laid bare in that game. Um, I will give you a big hat tip for saying like more than a month ago that the, the chiefs were just deeply flawed and um, I mean, obviously their defense was part of that, but I, I don't think you were just limiting that to defense. Like, what was your thinking on that at the time? Well, first, let me say something about the Patriots, because we just talked about this in the sure, 538 sure. chat. And what I pulled on them, the, these offensive and defensive efficiency stats, which are measured by yards per point, basically, and everybody should be the average is about 15.4, like every year. Um, but the last... Uh, I think six games going back to the uh, win before the Cowboy game. So five of the last six games they've won. They they have scored a point every 11 yards and allowed a point every 19 yards. And again, those numbers should be 15 for both categories. So that's, I, I will concede that maybe the Patriots are constructed in a way and Belichick is always really good at maximizing the efficiency with the little things that he keeps doing correctly. And they all add up to something that's probably non-random or less random, but I can't accept 19 and 11 as, as numbers that are predictive in any, any way. And the other thing about them is their third down conversion rate in the last four games. I think they're over 53% number one in the NFL in third down conversions, and they're allowing 31% third down conversions. Now to me, third downs are kind of like, a stat that just begs for regression. I just don't really believe that teams are legitimately so good on third down because if they were, they wouldn't even get to third down. Like they would just get first downs on first and second down. Right. So that's my big issue with the, with the um, uh, Patriots. Uh, 
I, I think they're good. I just don't think that they're a true Super Bowl contender. And then the Chiefs, you know, it's hard to talk about the Chiefs coming off a 500-yard game where they seem to get their, uh, you know, you know what together for the first time offensively. But the Raiders, to my eye, and I haven't rewatched the game, weren't really playing a lot of cover two, or they at least gave up on that uh, halfway through the game. So I don't know if they've still if they still have a solution for the way that I expect teams and especially good teams to play them offensively, uh, you know, teams defenses to, to attack the chiefs offense for the balance of the year. Yeah. The cover two shell, we, we kind of saw the Raiders come out of that, but it just, I don't know. That was a weird game. It seemed like the Raiders shot themselves in the foot every which way. Um, Would you, be amenable to me making the case for my Green Bay Packers. I know you and Scott generally hate them, but this defense, <laughs> this defense has been like really good. And I don't know how they've managed to actually improve defensively with Jair Alexander, one of the two or three best cover corners in the game on the shelf, and Zadarius Smith, their best pass rusher. But somehow, like Joe Barry has been, uh, the the first defensive coordinator that team has had in 20 years to like finally figure it out without Jare Alexander. Yeah. Without Jair. Exactly. So it, it's just kind of amazing that they've been able to do that. And, you know, obviously they're a good multifaceted team. They do kind of remind me of the last Super Bowl team in that they've got all these injuries and it's a bunch of guys who are going to be coming back right in time for the playoff push. Alexander, maybe Zedarius Smith, David Bakhtiari, one of the best left tackles in the league. But that last Super Bowl team just squeaked into the playoffs as like a sixth seed. And the Packers are already in really good shape and are presumably going to be playing at least one home game in the playoffs. So do you buy them as a, a legitimate contender? I mean, they're certainly a contender since they're um... – on pace right now to be the number one seed in the conference. But <clears throat> Bill Walsh famously used to say back in his heyday when his front office people would get panicked, you know, in the off season about uh, how hard it is to repeat and to win, he would be like, relax. Like we only really have to beat eight teams. Like, you know, the other teams beat themselves. Like we don't have to worry about them. So I think the fatal flaw for the Packers that will reveal itself when they play quality opposition is that they have a one wide receiver passing game. And I don't think that that's a uh, business model that can result in uh, Super Bowl success. And I think that's the reason why they've suffered in um, even as a favorite in recent postseasons, because ultimately they just don't have a diversified enough offensive portfolio. It's almost like in the NBA, right? You can't have that one dominant scorer. The, those teams in the playoffs will shut that guy down. You need to have like three, you know, they don't, who's after, if you shut down Adams with defensive attention, what's their plan B? They can't play left-handed. Yeah, that's fair. It's true. And I mean, it's something uh, me and a great many Packer fans have been screaming about for a long time, and yet the uh, management has failed. Ironically, <clears throat> they have diversity in the running game. Yeah, which we're about to see now with Aaron Jones presumably going to be out at least through their Week 13 bye. And it doesn't even matter. Like, There's no way that anybody's forecast of the Packers in the next three weeks will change appreciably because Jones is out. Right. Right. And that's kind of it. Uh, like a one of the impact fantasy 
contributors, and he's going to be out, and the, the offense itself is probably not going to miss a beat as long as Dylan can stay healthy. Um, yeah, turning turning over to a more directly fantasy-related topic, Mike, uh, we're recording this before Monday night's Rams 49ers game, so it's possible that whatever we say here is going to look stupid in the light yes. of day Tuesday morning. Uh, but what do you think is Odell Beckham's value now as a member of the Rams with with Robert Woods out for the year? Is he more or less valuable than Van Jefferson? It's just so weird how Woods tears his ACL the day they announced the signing of Beckham. Yeah, after the signing. Just bizarre. Crazy. Crazy. Because it was kind of like, this is like kind of a pointless luxury, right? But I... um, I would take odds on Van Jefferson versus Beckham for the rest of the year. Uh, I don't think I would have to make that bet sort of straight up. And I think that's reflective in their fantasy ADP and value and perception going forward. Um, You know, if I was able to make a two for two trade where I trade Beckham for, and and I get Jefferson back and then I win the other, you know, uh, part of that trade, I think there's a chance that Jefferson can actually equal um, Beckham, if not surpass him. So that's a trade that I would be looking to make. So I guess what I'm saying is I, I actually expect Jefferson's value to increase um, because I expect Beckham to not be as well-versed in the offense and get as many targets as Woods was getting. So that would probably leave more left over for Jefferson. I agree with you. I actually think this is more like I've got Jefferson higher in my rest of season rankings right now. Like I, Beckham's got two bad shirts. Like I took him in. Yeah. I think I took him in um, either the dynasty leagues that we're in or in the Raz Bowl because it was just kind of like this guy is, he has too much draft capital to totally give up on. You were able to get that guy like pretty much like as a pocket pick at the end of every draft in the summer. Yeah. I mean, the son of a wide receivers coach. He was the uh, one of the stars of Hard Knocks. Well, I don't know about a star, but like he was turning heads in training camp in his rookie season. Uh, I like him, and I'm just—I guess I'm really skeptical about Beckham, with with two bad shoulders. First of all, like I don't know if he's going to make it through the season. Exactly. Um, you know, we saw him like land awkwardly in in one game in Cleveland like a month ago, and he kind of did nothing after that. And his game is running slants, and and you know that's a throw that Stafford can make in his sleep. But is he going to expose himself to you know getting blasted by a safety with those bad shoulders? Willingly. Right. So you you probably then do not think he does any damage to Cooper Cup's fantasy value, which is... I, I don't. I think Cooper Cup is in that sort of Jerry Rice zone right now where he's just going to, you know, uh, race to the finish line. Yeah. And how amazing is that, that he is having that kind of a season? I mean, really, like... And I liked him. I didn't understand why... The market generally had uh, Woods over Cup, but it was more like an agnostic pick, which is most of my most of my good decisions come down to that, where it's kind of like these guys are at worst in the same bucket. Like, why am I picking Woods ahead of Cup? Like, I just think Cup had more um, a, a better history as a touchdown scorer, uh, projectably. So, you know, but if I had any inkling that cup was going to be as good as he is, I would own him everywhere. I wouldn't have just owned him because, Oh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go contrarian and take 
cup over Woods. I mean, that wasn't really something that you can even leverage that much because both those guys were t- typically going in the same round. Right. And and I mean, sometimes within a, a pick or two of each other in drafts. Yeah, I think the average was about eight picks of separation, but, but they were, uh, you know, right next to one another in wide receiver ADP. So there's another receiver who changed teams last week. Uh, do you think Deshaun Jackson has any value on the Raiders? I mean, everyone made fun of him for that weird fumble Sunday night that pretty much drove the final nail in the Raiders' coffin in that game. But, I mean, let's not overlook the fact that he did run by a defender to get open 40 yards downfield. And he should have walked right into the end zone. Like, it was a walk-in touchdown. I, I don't understand why he sort of stopped and ran into the defender, but... I, you know, Deshaun has a lot of weird plays in his history for as great a uh, weapon as he's been, generally speaking. Um, I, I, yeah, I think speed tends to age well. I think it's reasonable to be skeptical that a 34-year-old receiver could still be productive. But we've already seen, we've barely seen Jackson this year, but we have seen him on two different occasions for two different teams just burn teams deep still. Because he had that one great game for the Rams. Where if he didn't, uh, you know, I think he might have had a drop or or Stafford just missed him or I don't know what, but he could have had like 200 yards in that game. Like he's been one of the most erratic fantasy scorers, I think, in the, the history of fantasy. Like just a total roller coaster ride with him. I like him more in leagues where you're starting those leagues where you start a ton of flex spots and you have like 11 or 12 lineup spots and you know you're going to get a few duds every week. Yeah. And I don't mind thinking that, you know, there's a good chance he's going to be one of the duds, but then he can have one of those games where he, you know, hits a 70-yard touchdown and, and you know, you're golden with him. Yeah. Plus his health is always a constant right. question mark. yes. You know, the guy that I like more as like sort of a Deshaun Jackson type who's actually young, but he's got this DUI hanging over his head. I think he was the second rated receiver in the PFF rankings for the year heading into week 10. And he and he had a pretty good week 10. I thought he was going to be more productive in terms of the number of catches. But Deontay Harris is a good player. He is. And uh, doing a lot with a lot of snaps. Like they're really scheming him the ball, like not playing like these smaller snap shares, but getting a lot of targets and the occasional carry. Right. Uh, but yeah, you mentioned the DI, DUI thing. I think he was, did he plead guilty or was found guilty last week? Yeah, like that's resolved. So it's going to, it's going to trigger the three game suspension pretty much automatically. Like the league waits till it's resolved. So. I think so. But we always find out things that we don't know about these rules, like sort of after the fact, but why wasn't he already suspended? Yeah, you would think like within a couple of days after that was handed down. That's a huge factor. So I'm not, you know, I think if you play like in a dynasty league or something and could pick him up, boy, I, I kind of, I think he could be like sort of a poor man's, um, you know, Tyreek Hill. Yeah, his his wheels are impressive for sure. What's your take on Ramondre Stevenson, uh, another big newsmaker in, in week 10? Like when Damian Harris comes back, do you think Stevenson and Harris are going to share the load or do you think it's still Harris's gig? I, I wouldn't um, be so bold as to predict what I think the Patriots are going to do with running backs. But I will say this, just looking at it, you know, as a as a f- football like fan slash analyst, um the Patriots really need like the multi-dimensional uh, versatility 
that Stevenson gives them versus Harris. I think Harris is a really good player, but he's more of a two down back. And Stevenson also adds value as a receiver and also probably has a better pure size speed profile than Harris. I I don't even think that there's a question about that. So um, Stevenson actually should get at least 50% of the committee share going forward, in my opinion. I don't know what's going to happen, though. That's what I would expect. It is folly to try to guess what the Patriots are going to do with their running backs. I mean, since uh, I don't think we've been able to peg that since Corey Dillon was there. Um, but yeah, he is uh, he's an impressive dude. And the fact that he can be that big, like it's the it's the end for Brandon Bolden. Right. When Damian Harris comes back. Probably. He's such like a coach's pet, though, because of the special teams that I don't know. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he still ended up with like six touches a game or something going forward. But I would expect that, you know, when Stevenson's on the field and it's first or second down, he's also a threat in the in the passing game. And I think Jones needs that. Agreed. Now, I know you have not been a big Lamar Jackson fan in the past. And I wrote something before week nine about how I thought Lamar was poised for a really big second half of this season because the Baltimore offense and the Baltimore running game have, have both gone to seed. And so Lamar's passing and rushing attempts are both up. And then he went out and smashed in week nine and I was kind of patting myself on the back, but he obviously sucked in week 10 against the dolphins. What's your take on his fantasy value the rest of the way? Well, first of all, I, I've, was totally wrong about Lamar. Like I just thought, basically, I'm I'm more or less agnostic about player picking, but this is a guy that his own team traded out of their uh, a spot and then picked him lower in the draft, right? This is the team that actually ostensibly believed in him in the Ravens. Um, they traded out of a higher pick to trade down to get him. So they weren't really that concerned that somebody was going to trade up. And the model for for quarterbacks who were drafted that low the the hit rates are so low that I can't help but be skeptical. It wasn't it wasn't really a player projections per se, but I've been completely wrong. I mean, I think this is actually his more impressive season than his MVP season. But I think the danger lurking in the weeds is that the Dolphins attacked him with extra defensive backs, especially blitzing their defensive backs. And that was a model that worked against Lamar, if you remember, back in his rookie year when he lost to the Chargers in the postseason. So if teams replicate that and don't have to worry about going with small personnel because they're not worried about anybody other than Lamar running the ball against them, I think that that's something that will um, – I'm not saying that Jackson won't be able to thwart that because he's a much better passer from the pocket than I ever thought he would be. But it's going to be something that um, he's going to have to prove, I think. I think teams are going to attack the Ravens that way. It makes so much sense. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, you can't run out a dime defense in in non-obvious passing situations when J.K. Dobbins is lined up in the backfield. Or Gus Edwards, Mr. Five Yards for Gary. Yeah, Yeah. but yeah. Devonta Freeman is, is, you know, not a guy you're worried about a cornerback being able to tackle. So. Right. And every Freeman carry or Bell carry is a win for the defense right from the start. Yes, exactly. That's a really good point. Um, so it seems like we don't know a lot about the rookie quarterbacks yet. And certainly you have, uh, you know, you have a stake in this as a Jets fan with Zach Wilson, who's hurt and, you know, struggled predictably beforehand. 
Um, but a lot of these guys are struggling, pretty much all of them, except for Trey Lance, who's not playing. Have you drawn any conclusions yet about? Well, I don't think Jones is struggling. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he has, by a million miles, the best coaching staff of all those. Yeah, that's fair. Jones is not struggling. I mean, he's been the one guy who's who's uh, performed up to or exceeded. He's been better than Justin Herbert, in fairness. And I had Herbert in the Hall of Fame in August. Better than Justin Herbert this year, you mean? Not better than Herbert's rookie year? No, no, not, not. But what I'm saying is he's better in year one than Herbert is in year two. Like, think think about that. Yeah, I mean, Herbert, I kind of thought there might be some regression with Herbert, just having a new, uh, just everything went so well last year for him. And now he has a new system to pick up and um, just, you know, the sophomore slump thing. You figured there was going to be some yeah. natural regression. Um, but if you, except for, you know, Marino, who I compared him to his sophomore slump was like, what, 49. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There was really none for Dan. Um, have you drawn any conclusions about the guys besides Mac Jones, like about whether you might be interested in them or not interested in them for 2022? I think basically with all the, uh, a few years ago, I talked to Bill Parcells before the draft, and he said something that's always that's stuck in my head since that um, most of the players that we uh, chalk off as being draft busts are not player failures. They're really coaching and organizational failures. And um, I think that that's what it's going to come down to for these rookie quarterbacks. Like they, they clearly have like a skill set that can be effective if they are well supported and they are coached up but you know what are the odds in the nfl of that happening for any of these players i would say you know if we use that bill walsh math that i cited before what 25 30 percent of the teams are competent so right right there there's a 70 percent chance you're 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 and and you're walking into a situation that was bad to begin with if you're top pick Presumably the Urban Meyer and Matt Nagy regimes are not going to be in place next year. Is it possible for those guys to ruin their rookie quarterbacks in one season? Well, think about it though, right? He's now he has a rookie year and he's learning a system. And now next year he's got to have another coach in another system. Who's to say that that coach that replaces Urban Meyer and the coach that replaces uh, Matt uh, Nagy is, is actually good. I mean, they're probably going to be bad. Just like every rookie quarterback, no matter where they're drafted, is probably not going to be good. Every head coach that gets hired is probably not going to be good. Yeah, that's a good point. It is true. Uh, it's just, it's strange to see Trevor Lawrence struggling to this degree. You know, a guy who just... But I think that validates the 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 Parcells point, right? Yeah, and it's, it's certainly been a failing of that you think if Trevor Lawrence was on the Patriots, he wouldn't be doing what Mac Jones is doing plus. Right. That's a great point. Yeah. All right. So uh, what about what about your guy, Zach Wilson? What conclusions have you drawn so far? May, maybe not drawn conclusions. It's far too early for that. But what are your early impressions? You know, it's almost kind of like that's on the back burners because the more concerning thing with the Jets right now is that the coaching staff is completely overmatched and has been generally very bad, even on a um, first year coaching, uh, you know, kind of scale. And Joe Douglas has been a bad GM. I mean, it's like year, what, three? 
uh, and he's had two drafts and two off seasons where he's been completely in charge. And this roster, I'll be kind and say it's bottom five. I mean, you could certainly say it's it's the the worst. Yeah, and the defensive struggles for a defensive coach like Sala, and I know they've got issues. I know their their defensive backfield has like you know maybe two guys who have any experience in the NFL beyond this year, you know, like uh, however many DBs they have, like eight DBs, they probably got 10 combined years of NFL experience counting this year. Um, but man, I mean, it's that defense is just completely falling apart. But, it, but it's the classic mistake, Pat, in my opinion, right? You know, the Jets are coaching um, scheme to player where they really should always coach, especially with a bad roster player to scheme, you know? So in other words, you can't do the things that you were doing when you had good personnel in San Francisco offensively and defensively, which is basically the Jets coaching staff right now, right? You had, you had, you had better than average talent. You have to do things for the team that you have. You have to play that way. You have to figure out a way to not be embarrassing kind of like the lions have. Yeah. That yes. I mean the lions have uh, other than I mean they've been periodically embarrassing, but generally they haven't right. been embarrassing. Right. Get on team Shaq with Winbet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the Winbet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight better parlay. Offer subject to change, terms and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough winbet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Your lips can do a whole lot more than kiss. Your lips express love and speak your truth. Plump your lips with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC for natural-looking results that are completely and uniquely you. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there is a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. So as a Jets fan, where are you with Michael Carter? I got to imagine you're you're pretty enthusiastic about him, right? I'm actually not, man. I don't know. Like maybe maybe age is making me just such a sour personality, but but it's uh, or even more sour than I was in my youth. But but here's the thing: I don't really see any elite traits out of Carter. Like, what's he doing that's so good? Like, he's not especially fast, especially elusive. He's not. Um, he doesn't have you know great. Uh, uh, cutting ability or instincts like he's fine you know i'm sure if you had a good team around him he would be fine but i do expect if you're looking at more of a keeper or dynasty profile that the jets are very likely to draft a running back uh 
an elite talent running back in that second round with one of their their two second round picks. It just seems like the draft is set up for that this year. Well, I'm a little surprised you would say that because I know you're kind of talent agnostic at running back anyway. I am. And he's in this situation where I, I guess he's the kind of guy who is capable of thriving in situations because he has the versatile skill sets. But but could he be a bell cow though? Like do do you want to take a He kind of has been, Mike. I mean, look, like he's getting like 16 carries and six or seven targets every game. Right. That's that's pretty much bell cow now. Oh no. No. I, I but what I mean is can you project that from him going forward? All right. Yeah, I mean I don't think you can ask him to be Najee Harris, maybe just not big enough, but. Well, Harris is another guy that really, like, if you look at him, you would be like, this guy was a first round pick. Like, what, what am I missing? You know, I mean, he's big, but he doesn't show anything that's extraordinary. I'm talking about like, if you get a guy like Jonathan Taylor, who just jumps off the screen in the second round, like, I don't think if you have two second round picks, I, I don't think it's, um, bad analytics to do that there and then just ride that guy out for his first contract you don't have to worry about the high cap number because he wasn't um a first round pick in the fifth year and then just get rid of him rinse and repeat no i know i mean but like did we think michael carter was any less special coming out of college than say i don't know tiki barber or someone like that. I mean, and, and Tiki Barber wound up, yeah, being a pretty extraordinary bat. But did was there anything in his athletic skill set that just like made our eyes pop out of our heads right away? Or was he just this guy with this versatile skill set who, um, you know, was had the good fortune to stay healthy for most of his career and, um, you know, just played in a number of good teams and, and was able to shoulder that sort of workload for a long time? I mean, I guess here's the thing. I could see both sides. I could just see saying, you know, we we need to, um, as a Northeast team, we need to have a reliable um, uh, interior running attack, and we're going to try to build from the inside out, and the running back is going to be a part of it in a second-round pick, given that we have two isn't that high a, a price to pay. But I can see your point. I mean, it's not it's not a bad thought that, you know, what what's wrong with Carter? I'm not even saying that there's anything wrong with him. I'm just saying I don't look at him and, and I'm not like, wow, this guy's really good. No, you're right. And I, I think in an optimal situation, he does split work with someone. Well, I mean, like he did in college with Javante Williams at North Carolina. But I do think the right. fact that he was able to force a timeshare with Javante Williams, who everyone is over the moon about, yes. um, you know, does speak pretty well of, of Carter. What do you think about Elijah Moore? Uh, like, I know some people think he's destined for stardom. Do you think that's an overreach or are you kind of on that train too? Well, we're not getting enough of a snap share. Like, I think he only ran 29 routes yesterday. Um, or, or uh, So he's got to be viewed as a starter. And he's got to be on the field for all those snaps. Like he's, I think you can reasonably say he's more of a one than Corey Davis is and Corey Davis could be a two, but why aren't the jets um, doing that? I speculated on Twitter that this might be part of that 49ers Kyle Shanahan mindset that 
the players aren't good. We make the players good. Yeah, that could be. I mean, they just they got to get Jamison Crowder out of the way. We know what Jamison Crowder is. You know, he's a... Crowder actually is not... There's no reason why they can't play... I don't think Moore is just limited to being a slot receiver. You know, you could have Crowder... More and Crowder will be gone next year anyway, but you could have Crowder more and Davis. What's wrong with that? Those are the three guys I want out yeah. there when they're healthy. So you brought up Bill Parcells before, uh, and, and you've interviewed him on several occasions. Yes. <clears throat> yes. We've actually even talked non-professionally backstage, which is kind of weird, but, uh, you know, he, uh, so, so yeah. Um, I mean, it started, uh, he likes the fact that I'm a Jersey guy. I understand the diners and, and, uh, also, um, I, I'm like appropriately deferential without being psychophantic. And also I live nearby his, uh, high school, uh, Becton in, in East Rutherford. So, um, you know, those are things that he, he, um, you know, appreciates. So he likes you. Is, is he personable, prickly, both? Uh, very personable now. So, uh, y- you know, it, it, but obviously he's a wealth of such great insight, especially into a style of coaching that, you know, kind of has fallen by the wayside in the NFL. So, uh, and I, I don't really understand why it's fallen by the wayside since there have been so many successful models with that kind of CEO uh, approach to coaching a football team. Um, But we're more in the era of the genius play caller now who just kind of like, you know, in a Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan sense, it's just like they're in charge of the offense. And then, you know, the rest of the team, they, they don't really coach. Yeah, I like your classifications there, CEO coach and play caller coach. Who do you think are the CEO coaches still left? Well, I think Vrabel is probably the best example of a CEO coach right now. Um, and, you know, like I said, he's kind of like my favorite for, for coach of the year. And, and um, I, I think that you know, basically you coach the whole team and you weigh in on both sides of the ball, right? Like, so you, you have the headset on, I'm not saying to be like Mike McCarthy, where it's basically like you're a potted plant out there. Like what is McCarthy really doing except for screwing up the end games with timeouts, right? And, and game management generally. But, you know, that just means that ultimately you can override everything. And you're also coaching both sides of the ball. And, and even special teams a little bit, like you're in charge of everything. And I don't think that you can be a, basically the offensive coordinator, let's say. And how do you even have time to coach the rest of the team? And do you even know what's going on? And when the defense is being called, are you even listening? Or are you figuring out what you're going to do when you get the ball back? See, like Parcells in the headset would be, the CEO coach hears everything. He has the two coordinators, which run their the offensive and, and defense respectively. But at times, it's like, hey, I want this now. You're going to do this now. You know what I mean? And then they would do it because he was in charge. It's kind of like being the CEO of a company, right? Like you don't let all the underlings do everything. At some point, you have to weigh in and straighten out messes. Yeah, it's true. I mean, there have been some successful, I don't know, would you call, say, Mike Holmgren? a play caller coach. 
because he always kind of like when he was with Green Bay, he always had Fritz Shermer running the defense. And I don't think he really interfered with what Shermer was doing too much. I would say, but is it fair to say that he underachieved given his quarterback talent in terms of the number of Super Bowls he won? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very so fair. There you go. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> True. Good point. I mean, even even Bill Walsh, really, if you look at the 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 power, including Holmgren, of his coordinators during his 49er heyday, um, Mike Shanahan, I mean, it was ridiculous. Like he let guys actually run the offense and he coached the whole team. Even though he has, it was like the Bill Walsh system, right? And it might be the Mike Tomlin defensive system in Pittsburgh, but Tomlin is a CEO coach. Yeah, he is a CEO coach. I'm trying to think of other obvious cases and like not even in the current NFL, but in the distant, like Dick Vermeil, I, I would guess you would consider a CEO coach. Right, because he had Mike Martz. Yeah. Mar- Marty Schottenheimer, would he have been a CEO coach? I, I I think so. Kind of straddling the line, maybe. Yeah. Dan Reeves, I think, was. Yes. I think he was for sure. You know, that used to be the way that mo- – because remember, they didn't have the kind of staffs that they had back in the day. Uh, they, they didn't have the size of the staffs that they have presently. I mean, these teams have like 30 coaches. Right, which I think is what sort of... They used to have like five. Right, and that's sort of what drove the the bifurcation, I think, of the, the head coaches. And, and and it might be too much now, yeah. right? Like, in other words, imagine being in a conference room with five people versus being in a conference room with 30 people. Like, what's going to get done in that conference room with 30 right. people? Even if you are a CEO coach. Yeah, well said. I would be like, you know, I would kick like 24 people out of the room and just talk to <laughs> yes. them. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, well, Mike, I would be remiss if I had you on the show and didn't talk music with you for at least a couple minutes, as you alluded to earlier. Um, what's the best Led Zeppelin album, in your opinion? Yeah, I'm going to have to say uh, Physical Graffiti. And, and the reason why is because... I like an album that sort of summarizes what the band was completely. And Zeppelin is a sprawling band. So a double album kind of fits, you know, and I'm not saying that all of the songs on physical graffiti are great, but I think it also shows their um, sort of eclecticism as far as their musical styles, probably more equally than any of their other albums. And I think it is the peak of the page production methods, which I think is sort of a signature of, of Led Zeppelin, their, their ACE production that page kind of um, shepherded. And also I think it probably has like, to me, 10 years gone is probably the most underrated song in the Zeppelin catalog that is rarely played. Yeah. That's, I think that is the best case of it ever heard anyone make for physical graffiti, which I think most people, most Zep fans like more than I do. Like to me, I've never felt strongly about one album over the other, but my contenders are more like one, two, four and houses of the holy. And I I think there was, which is totally reasonable. Yeah. I mean, like I, I think you could really any of those five you could make the case for. And I'm not sure why physical graffiti has just never grabbed me. Certainly I like a lot of those songs. And I think in a Rolling Stone poll a few years ago, it, it was second to right. Led Zeppelin four as far as favorite fan favorite 
So, uh, but that's plus, you know, I'm a little bit of a contrarian. I mean, I'm the guy who says Missy was the best Rolling Stones, <laughs> but your so, case for that no, was good. I, I'm going them co-opting the it, disco uh, genre. It was, it was, it was good. Um, but you know, I, I I don't think you could really go wrong. Like all their albums, I think are really strong. But that that would be the one for me. And plus, my daughter actually lives across the street from the house on St. Mark's, where which is the cover of that. Oh, really? That I had no idea. That's interesting. That's it. Where that's in the city somewhere in New York. Yes, yeah, St. Mark's Place. Oh, I had no idea. Um, the the 30th anniversary of Nirvana's Nevermind just passed a couple months ago, and I I know I've heard Scott's Pianowski talk about Nirvana. I don't know if I've ever heard you and Scott talk about Nirvana together. Uh, are you were you a fan of of Nirvana? Um. Uh, you know, actually, Nirvana came at a time where I was I was, um, you know, entering into like the next phase of my life, like pure adulthood. So I kind of looked down upon, you know, the younger generation as as people once they reach that stage of their life are prone to do. So it just didn't resonate with me, but probably in more of a willful manner, because I was just kind of rejecting that you know, that younger generation or something that was so popular with the younger generation could speak to me, which was really like probably, a, um, not probably, it was just a, a very unsophisticated way of looking at it at the time. But that's the way I looked at it. And then, you know, it sort of just got got past me. So grunge came and, and you were like, what the hell is this shit? This isn't rock, that sort of thing. No, no, I didn't think that at all. I actually like the music. It's Guns N' Roses is, is the same thing. I like both of the bands, but I just didn't really um, attach myself to them because, you know, we tend to get stuck in the music that uh, that we listen to from, you know, our teenage years to our early 20s. And then that becomes the music, you know, and then once you get past that, I think you could appreciate things, but they can't resonate kind of like in a soulful way or a, a way that really speaks to you um once you get past that window yeah i can understand that all right so so going into that wheelhouse mike bob dylan elton john bruce springsteen if i told you that you had to pick one of those three artists and could never listen to any of their songs ever again who would you choose for musical banishment you know, like, I, I, I just hate these questions where we're banishing, like, pick one, <laughs> all the others are dead. Um, <clears throat> okay, but I will play along, all right? I will not be a bad sport here. I, uh, Dylan is a, is, is obviously, you know, a great lyricist and a true genius and probably the towering musical um, solo act of the 20th century. Uh, I don't even think there's a question about that. But once you've experienced it all, you know, it's almost like you don't have to, it's like reading like the greatest novel in the world. Like, do you have to go back and read it again? Or you get most of what you're going to get out of it that first time. Um, Springsteen to me, like, you know, I don't want to sound like, you know, a uh, boomer white guy here, but I've seen Bruce probably like uh, over at least 50 times in concert. And to me, that's Bruce. You know what I mean? So I could kind of like live without the albums as good as they are generally, uh, because Bruce, to me, uh, all my memories of Bruce are at, at concerts. 
And so, so that leaves Elton John. And, and I would have to say, you know, Elton John has such a uh, sprawling catalog and has such a range of musical styles and is so uh, kind of melodious. You know what I mean? Where repeated listenings, it could, he could stand up to it because his bridges and choruses are just like so out of this world. So I would have to say Elton John would be my pick. He would be the one you would keep, but if you had to You'd banish be the one that I'd keep, if you had to banish one, it would probably be Dylan. Then, oh man, I'm not banishing. Anybody. <laughs> I refuse right. to pay. Like I will, I will, Fair. I will accept that I have to keep one or listen to only one the uh, the rest of my life. But I will not banish anybody. Fair. I'm not going to. I'm not going to put Bruce into purgatory. <laughs> You're a Jersey guy. You can never do that. So, and those were thorough enough answers. I, I can absolutely accept that. Um, all right, back, back to fantasy football and the time we have left. Uh, so based on something, I think I saw you tweet the other day, it seems like you're as confused by James Connors success as I am. Uh, yes. Like when the season is over, are people going to look at his, touchdown counts and inevitably overrate him like is he destined to be one of the biggest sucker plays in 2022 drafts well i think the lesson that we can learn from connor and one that i actually ascribe to but it, it escaped me in this case I, I i was i had too much hubris in my ability to evaluate running backs but agnosticism is the best policy it, it's like it's like being a closer in fantasy baseball. Whoever gets the gig is fine, right? And you know they have probably the same range of outcomes. And, and this isn't a case for everybody. You know they're like Jonathan Taylor. I want to put in this category. Like that guy is just an unreal talent. But from ninety five percent of the uh, running back pool, it it just is whether they're going to get the volume. And and he got not only enough volume. But he got the high the value. Most, yeah, the most high valued touches on the goal line on a team that has scored disproportionately more run, running touchdowns and passing touchdowns. Which is something that you should always accept as possible in the range of outcomes. So, you know, basically I'm castigating myself for underrating Connor and just looking at the fact this guy's washed. He got you know, basically a minimum wage deal. Nobody else wanted him. Like, how could I take this guy seriously? When you could have easily just said, well, he's a guy who's going to get touches and here he is in the 10th round. Why not? He's in the Kenyon Drake role. So why can't he get 10 touchdowns? Fair enough. That's a, that's a probably a better way of looking at it. So, but then he will be a fade for you next year when people are drafting him in the fourth or fifth round based on oh, the touchdowns sure. for you. Yeah, for sure. I just don't take running backs in that area of the draft. So right. it's not necessarily like a, a player projection fade. I'm just not taking any of those players there. Sure. I know, I know how you operate. I mean, that's the, the wide receiver zone and it's kind of that way for me too. But uh, yeah. So, and, and unfortunately we're not going to be getting James Conner opportunities in the 10th round anymore next year. Um, all right. I think you and I have a fundamentally, <laughs> Uh, different view of this player. But I'm really interested to see how you answer this question. Is Kirk Cousins a good quarterback? Uh, you know, I don't know what you think I'm going to say. I think Kirk Cousins has great traits and um, is a great passer. 
I don't want to say arm talent. I think that's kind of trite um, and can make any throw. Oh, there's one, there's one he but can't he make. The one that wins the game. <laughs> <laughs> that, and he is, he is for some reason incapable and it's a stupid play call anyway, but he cannot throw an end zone fade. Yeah, but look, man, if there were if there was never an end zone fade called again, uh, that would be fine. Touche, touche. And he's really taken. good at the fake fade, you know, and then you throw it right at the pylon. Like Adam Thielen gets touchdowns that way. Yes, yes. Which is a great actual that's a that's actually a great play call because the probability of that is probably, you know, I would say it's three times what your hit rate is on a fade that play. So, um uh, but he's the classic guy that needed if he had the right coach who would have pressed the right buttons and got him got in him out of his robotic way of approaching football where basically down distance game situation nothing matters i'm always going to take the highest probability play like you can't play that way like you know there are some times when you've you've got to you know um take a chance basically right? And let her rip. He doesn't do that. So if he had, I don't know who that coach would be, but if he had a coach that would have gotten that out of him, I think he could have had a Hall of Fame career. But he's a disappointment now because he's never going to play to his talent because he just, he doesn't have the, you know, DGAF uh, mindset at all. You need a little bit of that when you're the quarterback. Yeah, I would compare him to Matt Ryan in that respect. Like, Well, I always say that there's an ideal interception rate, and it's not zero. Yes. Right, you do need a little degaff in your game, and I, I don't think Cousins has a lot of it. Yeah, I mean, I think I personally think he is the epitome of a league average starting quarterback. But he makes plays that that are that are so far that are like ninetieth percentile. He he can put the ball into into tight windows as well as any quarterback in the NFL. He just doesn't avail himself to that enough. Right, he does. Um, sometimes I'm kind of shocked by his lack of of pocket awareness. Then uh, I I do, man, and you know I know you're a baseball guy, so I I know like the. Baseball guys who look at numbers dispel the notion of clutch hitting. And I don't know if you dispel the notion of clutch quarterbacking, but like I do think there is some sort of clutch gene that's kind of missing from Cousins' game and his record in big games and primetime games kind of reflects that. Well, yeah, but then look what he did against the Saints in back-to-back years. True, true. I mean, that's his one. But, you know, I can also remember him needing like – a layup back when he was with Washington, like needing to beat the Giants who were playing out the string in week 17 for the, the for Washington to get into the playoffs and, and like just falling on his face in that game. Who's been a bigger underachiever when you look at, well, I guess this isn't, isn't fair because Rodgers is the Packers, right? Oh, Rogers, yeah, he's Rodgers. Rogers is, is, he's is been light sad, right? I, he's very light for sure, Mike, yeah. but he's been saddled by so many just pitiful defenses, like pitifully underachieving defenses. So I guess like that's where I'd kind of like – And Zimmer, But Zimmer is the exact wrong coach for Cousins, right? Because he is – he coaches in a straitjacket. He just doesn't want the offense to make any mistakes. So he kind of like leans into all of Cousins' weaknesses. And then he criticizes Cousins, you know, I, I, not 
I, I don't think literally, but you could tell he's displeased with Cousins for not doing the things that he's kind of constraining Cousins to not do. Yeah, that's fair. All right, Mike, one more thing before I let you run. Uh, I've been asking my recent guests about their 2021 hits and misses. Yes, I was looking forward to this. Yeah, who are a couple of the guys that you uh, have gotten right, whether just buying a lot of them or fading? Okay, now here's the thing. I'm going to go big picture here because this is my whole approach. I am sort of agnostic on players. I don't feel that you can win consistently in picking players because you're going to have hits and misses. And many times our great teams and our great fantasy seasons aren't necessarily a matter of the players we picked, but the players that we were forced to pick. You know, like you may have somebody may may have said a dollar more in an auction and you didn't get a guy that was horrible, right? And so you settled for somebody else who ended up being great. In a draft, the guy you really wanted was taken just before, so you took somebody else, and then that guy ends up being a league winner. Like, so who knows, right? So, but structurally, I'm a tier ranker, and I'm also a structural drafter. So let me say something that I think I got right and something I think I got wrong. And why the thing I got wrong is not something that I consider to be a process error or something I'm going to change. I'm the biggest proponent probably in the industry, or at least as big as anybody in elite tight end as a draft strategy. And that's basically if you think that the uh, tight end can be a 1,000 yard receiver in the old school way of 16 games, I don't know, whatever it would be for 17, then you draft that guy, you make it that guy a priority because he gives you such an edge at the tight end position that he's uh, a league winning player. So anybody that you think can be that level of a receiver, you make a priority to take. But that hasn't worked out that that way this year. But I don't think that's a failure of the elite tight end strategy. I think it's a play, a failure of us forecasting that these players were going to be 1,000 yard receivers. I think there was a general consensus that at least two or three would be, and they haven't been. So, you know, does that mean I'm not going to draft elite tight ends anymore? No. If I think, if the market thinks that there are one to three guys who could be 1,000-yard receivers, I'm going to really move heaven and, and hell to try to get those guys. But if they don't, then I'm not going to be like, well, I think this guy can be. I'm just not, then I'm going to completely punt tight ends and 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 try to get guys, you know, on waivers or at the end of the draft and get lucky. Like I, I will not middle the tight end position. So that's something I think that I got wrong. Is Darren Waller one of those guys? Do you have a lot of Darren Waller shares this year? Yes. Yeah. And I think everybody, I think even the people who are against elite tight end as a strategy who are just like, it's a onesie position. So who cares? They would have stipulated that Waller is, is a likely 1000 yard receiver. Yeah. I, and Hunter catch Hunter catch 100 yard receiver, like, you know, or what 98 catches like close enough to a hundred where we're quibbling, but that's not working out. Yeah. I didn't dispute his value. I just disputed that he was towards the end of draft season. I was seeing him get into the middle of the second round and I just, I thought that maybe what what if we see improvement from Henry Ruggs? Obviously, that went sideways, and, and Brian Edwards. Like, is there? But a none of those that, things have actually happened. None of those things have happened, and Waller has just been sort of disappointing. Besides, you know, for other reasons, I guess that I I'm still not sure I understand. Yeah, and there was that big thing in the in the summer where uh, I think a reason why you 
could have reasonably gotten off of him is there was a long time in the summer where he was just not at practice and nobody knew why. Right. The inexplicable absence for like two weeks when he was dealing with something that was... It might have even been long. Yeah. That was not really reported. And as far as something that I got... So I'm not going to change. Next year, if... if if uh, Now, Kelsey's aging out, so he won't be a guy next year. I don't know. Like maybe Pitts will be the only guy that you could forecast that way. But the thing about tight end that that the fair criticism of the elite tight end strategy is it's very coaching and system dependent. You know what I mean? Where the wide receiver, nobody's going to screw up Justin Jefferson, although the Vikings don't throw to him enough. But you know what I'm saying? Like for the most part, those guys who play a standard position aren't as reliant on scheme and coaching as the tight ends are. Um, but something that I think I got right was avoiding that dead zone of running backs in rounds two through four, where basically if you look at the preseason ADP right now, and there will be misses at wide receiver, nobody's saying that, you know, you take a receiver there and you're golden, uh, but the rate of misses on the running backs is twice the rate of the uh, rate of the misses at receiver. And that's chalk. Like that's, that's the base rate. That's what we should expect. So why are we drafting against the wind and uphill by taking running backs at that stage of the draft? Like RB, you know, 12 to 20. Yeah. Um, Clyde Edwards, Hilaire, Antonio Gibson, um, stretching it out even further. Mike Davis. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good point. The, the tight end thing is interesting. Whether I think it's the right way to play. If, if there is a consensus, if you're going to be agnostic about picking the player, if you're going to say, look, the market thinks this guy is, is a, a potential 100-catch, 1,000-yard receiver. If that guy exists, and in most years he won't, I think that guy, if those forecasts are correct, is a league winner. And I do agree that it is very uh, coach and system dependent. But even then, it I mean, Dan Campbell was a tight end and the Lions have just trash for their wide receiver core and somehow uh, TJ Hawkinson gets completely sh- but but I predicted that Pat because I said and, and Scott agreed with me on the breakfast table we had many conversations about this and we disagree on a lot of stuff but we agree on a lot of stuff too and that those those agreements are I think very valuable um but that what what I said and what Scott agreed with me on is that Hawkinson that that was a that was a bug that was not a feature the fact that there's no other receivers because well, right off the bus, Hawkinson can be X'd out by any defense who gives enough of a crap to do it. It's not hard to just bracket a tight end into non-relevance uh, when he's playing in line like Hawkinson is going to be for the most part. That's easy. And that's what's happened predictably, in my opinion. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Michael Salfino. Find his work on fantasy at the athletic uh find his general nfl work at 538.com uh listen to his podcasts at betprep.com the given props and given futures pods with professional gambler brad feinberg and of course listen to the breakfast table podcast uh one of my favorites a, a can't miss every week it is a patreon only show but it's very affordable as mike has said i think it's uh the equivalent of buying mike and scott a cup of coffee at a diner every month so uh exactly especially a jersey (laughs) diner find him on twitter at michael salfino mike thanks for stopping by 
Hey, it's been a pleasure, man. Always enjoy it. That's a wrap for this week's show. Let me once again thank my guest, Michael Salfino. Find him on Twitter, at Michael Salfino. The producer of Fits on Fantasy is Calm Kelly. Find him on Twitter, at Overtime Ireland. Music for Fits on Fantasy is provided by International Jet Set. And as always, my thanks to all of you for listening. I'm very grateful that you loaned me your ears for an hour. Here's hoping that you have a successful playoff push with your fantasy teams in the weeks ahead. All right, everyone. Thanks again for stopping by. I'll be back again next week with another great guest. And this time I really do mean it. So long, everyone. This season on American Prodigies, Black Girls in Gymnastics. You'll hear about trailblazers like Diane Durham. Learn what you don't know you don't know about Dominique Dawes. Meet superstars like Olympic silver medalist Jordan Childs and more. Hear how Black gymnasts have and continue to transform their sport. You can binge all the episodes of American Prodigies now, wherever you get your podcasts.